Amen. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8. We're going to be looking at this chapter today. Let's hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerichiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear. All you far countries, strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. But the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy. All that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? 
Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, it's a strong word. It's a sobering word. It's a confusing word in places to us because we are limited in our understanding. It is your word. And we're your people. And we pray, needing, seeking you to speak your word to us, to our hearts. Write it on our souls. May we be shaped and transformed by your word and your spirit for the time we spend in your word together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you know that I really enjoy teaching, and uh, I teach history and literature, and obviously the Bible's my favorite thing to teach, but I've been teaching literature uh, at the high school level off and on for most of the past 25 years. I love stories. I love the power of literature to help us examine our own lives from a different and challenging perspective. One of the most important things to pay attention to in any story is the plot. Plot reveals character. Plot plot reveals so much of what is hidden is made clear as the story progresses. And and one of the things to pay important attention to is what's driving the plot. The plot of any story is driven by conflict. And most stories have an external conflict. It might be a war or a journey or a fight, right? But then there's also an internal conflict. And I generally will teach my students to pay closest attention to the internal conflict of the main character of the story because that is really what the story is all about and what is driving the story forward. Let me give you two examples. In Pride and Prejudice... The external conflict is the question of marriage for the Bennett sisters, particularly for Jane and Elizabeth, and especially for Elizabeth. Will they marry well, or will they live a life of poverty and hardship? But even more central are the internal conflicts within Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy. Can he overcome his pride, and can she get past her prejudice against him They have to resolve these internal conflicts so that they can have their external conflict resolved and live happily ever after. Second example, in Rocky, the external conflict is the looming fight with Apollo Creed. 
But the more important conflict is the internal conflict within Rocky Balboa. Will he be able to overcome the negative influences and escape the poverty and hardship of his life in Philadelphia without forgetting who he is and where he's come from? Right? So I got one for the women, one for the guys. We're all good. All right. So internal conflict. Well, here's, here's my point. It's not really about literature, but it's about life. Your life and mine are, in many ways, an unfolding plot line. Now, you and I face external conflicts all the time. We face conflicts at work with people we disagree with, policies we might disagree with, pressure we feel we're under. We, we face conflict in our marriage, conflict with our children, conflict with extended family members, conflict with our culture and, and changing realities that are, that are dragging on us within our culture. But you see, the conflicts that really are driving the plot of your life at the root level the ones that are really shaping you, who you are and where you're heading, are your internal conflicts. And I would suggest that in Isaiah 8, what we have here is the external conflict of Syria and northern Israel pressing down on Judah and Jerusalem, and then their desire to look for hope in Assyria. And so this war, this War that's already happened, war that's coming, that's the external conflict. But the internal conflict is happening within the heart of King Ahaz. And how the Lord speaks to Ahaz here will speak to us and our internal conflicts. And we're going to look at it in this way. I think that in life, your answers to four key questions shape most profoundly who you are and who you are becoming what your future self will be like. What are these questions? They arise right out of this text. One is, what are you hoping for? Two, what are you afraid of? Three, what are you waiting for? And four, who are you listening to? What are you hoping for? What are you afraid of? What are you waiting for, and who are you listening to? Those four questions, so often as Christians, as believers, we have a, a profession of faith that we speak. We have the Word of God that we read. We have our prayers that we pray. And sometimes we feel this disconnect between that and the reality of our sort of everyday life. And it's often been said that the longest and hardest journey is one of 18 inches to take the things that we know that are true up here and have them sink down here so that they really shape the way we actually live our lives. And the way I say it is this, what drives your life is not your professed theology, but your possessed theology. It's not what you say you believe, but it's what you actually believe in your heart that often goes unspoken. And I would propose to you that your answer to these four questions can make that connection from head to heart to life. Hoping, fearing, waiting, listening. So Isaiah 8 begins with a strange story and an even stranger name. Thus the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common letters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> Telling you, the Kalambihis family missed out because that 
would be an awesome name. Meher Shalal Hashbaz Kalambihis. I mean, no one would ever get it right or ever be able to spell it. It's actually the longest name in the Bible and the longest word in the Bible, but it's given for a, for a very particular reason. So God tells him, take a large tablet, write on it in common letters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebrekiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, before he can cry, Papa or Mama, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This is all under the heading of what are you hoping for? Which might seem strange at first glance, but we'll see. Isaiah is told first to take a large tablet and write on it a very unusual property of belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And then, to the solemnness of this, he's going to get two reliable witnesses. Uriah the priest is someone who would have been well-known to King Ahaz. The, the king and the priest had to work well together. They were the leadership within Israel, within Jerusalem and Judah at this time. And then, Zechariah, the son of Jebrekiah, is probably Ahaz's father-in-law. It's probably who that is. So these are two people who were well-known and well-trusted, and they're solemnly attesting to this property of tablet. And then it's after he's inscribed the name that Isaiah has a baby, the prophetess is, a, is his wife, and they have, a they have a baby, and they call the baby's name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And uh, like I said, it's the longest name in the Bible, longest word in the Bible. What does it mean, though? It means swift to the plunder. And God explains in verse 4 why he wants this child to have this name because before the boy knows how to cry, Papa or Mama, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So I think putting the pieces together from chapter 7 and chapter 8, Meher Shalal Hashbaz is the younger brother to Emmanuel. Emmanuel partially fulfilled in a child given to Isaiah. And they have the older brother who we met in chapter 7, Shear Jashub. So Emmanuel got lucky on that one because, you know, if you had to pick your names from Shear Jashub, uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, or Emmanuel, I think we'd all pick Emmanuel every day. So these are their, these are their kids. And uh, we, we know this 
likely because in verse 18, Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. And Emmanuel is referenced really twice in, in this passage, um, said to the whole land of Judah, uh, O Emmanuel, in verse 8, but then also when verse 10 ends with, For God is with us, that's another uh, instance of Emmanuel. God is with us, Emmanuel. So, what do we have here? Well, what we have here is, Maher Shalal Hashbaz is a confirmation of the prophecy that was made before the conception and birth of Emmanuel, and that is that a very specific time, it's a time before Emmanuel knows how to discern right from wrong, right? And it's a time before Maher Shalal Hashbaz can even say, Papa and Mama. So God's being very specific with his timing. This is when your immediately threatening enemies of Syria and Israel, they're referred to by their capital cities here, uh, Damascus, the capital of Syria, Samaria, the capital of Israel. Just like when we talk about the governments of foreign countries, like, you know, we'll talk about well, what's the news coming out of Washington, D.C.? Or what's the news coming out of London? Or what's the news coming out of Paris? You know, we're referring to the government of that country. So here, the government, the leaders of these countries, Damascus and Syria, they're going to be plundered. And they're going to be plundered by Assyria. So God is God's stating very clearly what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. And he's not only giving us in oracles that are spoken through Isaiah the prophet, but he's also doing it in the very names of the children who are being born to Israel who become incarnational signs. So all three children together, Shear Jashub, the remnant shall return, Emmanuel, God is with us, and Maher Shalal Hashbaz, swift to the plunder, or swift to the spoil. When I was in high school, I think my, my parents could have named me swift to the buffet line. <laughs> my parents all, took me to every all-you-can-eat buffet they could think of because they knew they were going to get their money's worth. But this is, this is a reference to the king of Assyria. He will be swift to the plunder. So there's hope and there's judgment together in this word and in these names. The hope is, hey, the ones you're immediately afraid of, the immediate threat that you're panicked about, Syria and Israel, they're going to be gone, and they're going to be gone soon. Before this baby can even say, Mama and Papa, they're going to be gone. It's good news. Here's the bad news. Because you wouldn't trust me to do that for you, and instead you sent an envoy with money to bribe the king of Assyria, this is this, you wouldn't trust the waters of Shiloh. You wouldn't trust me to do this for you. A different river is going to flow. The river is a reference to the Euphrates, which is a huge, powerful river. It floods over its banks. It floods the whole area. What's today Iraq, if you look through the heart of it, you have the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's really one river system that splits into two. The Tigris and Euphrates, they reunite down in what's today Kuwait. They flood every year, and that flooding actually produces fertility in the land, but it also produces devastation if it's too much flooding or comes at the wrong time. Right? So it's kind of one of those things. Well, that flood is going to sweep down. And it's going to come even up to the neck. 
It's a very specific prophecy. It's going to come even up to the neck. Now, what happens if water floods you and you're trapped and the water comes even up to your neck? You're scared, right? You are panicked, right? But you're also spared just at the last minute. And this is what's going to happen later when Assyria comes in because they're going to devastate all the towns of Judah and then they're going to surround Jerusalem and God's going to send one angel in one night and destroy the entire Assyrian army as a demonstration to the people of Jerusalem. This is going to be King Hezekiah by the time it comes along. It's down in chapter 37. As a demonstration to the people of Jerusalem you should have trusted me from the beginning. But because they wouldn't trust him. This is that be careful what you wish for, you might just get it. On a human level, God had always planned to use Assyria to wipe out Syria and Israel before they could conquer Jerusalem. God had made a promise that he was going to preserve the Davidic line. He was going to preserve the kingship. So he had always planned to use Assyria to wipe out Syria and Israel. They were already going to do that, right? By sending an envoy with a huge treasure of gold and silver to Assyria, what did King Ahaz end up doing? He ended up painting a target on his own back that probably would not have been there otherwise. Because now the king of Assyria says, oh, there's great wealth in Jerusalem, apparently. Think I know where I'm going to go after I finish with Syria and Israel. Thank you very much. I'll take that. Sure, I'll take care of Syria and Israel. He's going to do that anyway. And then I'll come right into your town. This is what happens when we put our hope and our trust in earthly things for our deliverance. If we hope in man, sometimes the worst thing that can happen is that we get what we were hoping for. Because we find out that God had a better plan. Now God's grace in the midst of this word of judgment is found in Emmanuel. And God is with us because God is saying in, in grace, and this is grace. Grace, what is grace? Grace is favor from God in the face of deserved judgment. Okay? We say grace is undeserved favor. Yes, it's undeserved, but it's not to a, someone who's in a neutral position, right? Who hasn't done quite enough to earn it, but you give it anyway. It's actually to a person who, who has earned judgment who has earned condemnation and instead is given favor, instead is given grace. And that's exactly what's happened here. They went and sent the treasure from the Lord's house, the gold and silver that was in the temple, and they sent it to the king of Assyria. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. But Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which is the greatest word in the Bible, God with us. And so God is going to preserve them, but it is an opportunity for us to check ourselves. Who do we hope for? Who do we hope in? 
Isaiah says in verse 16 and 17, bind up the testimony, seal, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Ahaz was waiting for Assyria and hoping in Assyria. But Isaiah declares his resolve to wait for and hope in the Lord. And so the question is, what are you hoping for? Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is the certain expectation that God will act according to his word, and he will keep his promises, that he is good and he can be trusted. And listen, we need hope the most when everything we see with our eyes tells us the opposite. When everything we feel in our heart tells us the opposite, hope says God is good, God will keep his word, God will keep his promises, God will do what he has said to do for you, and he will not fail. That's what hope is, and that's why Hebrews talks about hope being an anchor for the soul, because it gives us security. Now, we can place our hope in lots of things in the world. If you're a student, you might hope that you studied the right things sufficiently well enough to do well on your exam and get good grades. I know it. New Covenant, we just came through midterm exam week this past week, and my, my own two kids were just hoping. I hope I studied the right things. I hope I studied enough. And I had students coming into my class. I hope I studied the right things. I hope I studied enough. Sometimes those hopes are realized, and sometimes those hopes are dashed against the rocks of reality. If you're single... You may be hoping that the right person is going to come into your life and make you complete. And finally, your life is going to be whole. If you're working, you may hope for a promotion or a raise. That could be another example of, be careful what you hope for. You might just get it. More than one person has gotten the raise or the promotion that they longed for, and they realize, wait a minute, <laughs> we're watching... Uh, all Creatures Great and Small. Um, the BBC's done a new version of this. It's available through PBS. It is excellent. Um, the guy who, who stars in it, uh, Nicholas, um, Ralph Nicholas, Nicholas Ralph, anyway. He played C.S. Lewis in the recent C.S. Lewis Most Reluctant Convert movie. And uh, he's really, really good. Anyway, James Harriet goes away on his honeymoon and comes back to find out he's been made a partner in the vet practice. This is wonderful. He's a partner in the practice now. But that means that he shares in the expenses and in the liabilities as well. And so he gets his first check as the junior partner who has 40% of the practice. And he's like, this is less than I was making before. <laughs> That's right. So that happens sometimes. You're working a lot more and not seeing much of a raise. Every one of these hopes can be disappointed, and that's why none of them should ever be the hope of your soul, the expectant desire that you need to have fulfilled. Isaiah says, I will hope in him. David says the same thing in the Psalms. I will put my hope in God. If we hope in him, we will not be put to shame. So two, what or who are you fearing? 
in order to get to secure hope in the Lord, sometimes we have to deal first with what we fear, which is actually why in the text you'll see verses 11 to 15 come before Isaiah's declaration in verses 16 and 17. 11 to 15 says, For the Lord spoke thus with me concerning his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a stone of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many will stumble on him. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. We all fear something and someone because we all think that something or someone is bigger and more powerful than we are and might do us harm. The world and the devil want you to be afraid of things in this world. They want you to live in dread. Why? Do you make good decisions when you are in a panic? No. Helping to coach basketball this year, and one of the things that I get on our kids about is panic passing. Right? You've seen this in basketball, particularly at the middle school, high school level. Kid gets the ball, two defenders come on him, and all of a sudden, he doesn't know what to do. Chuck the ball. It's a panic pass, right? Panic passes are never a good idea. It's how turnovers are created, right? But we do that in life. If you're afraid of something, if you're acting out of fear or anger, which is where Satan wants to keep you, Which is why God says, do not call conspiracy all that they call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Don't let anything in the world get you into a panic where you're going to act out of earthly fear. But there is one you should fear. And fearing him will actually give you security, strength, stability. How does that work? Well, There is fear, and then there's being afraid of, and those aren't always the same thing. And if you have a dog, you know what I mean. We have a dog. If you come over to our house and you meet our dog, first of all, if you come over to our house, you're probably not going to meet our dog. And this is why. (laughs) Because if you come over to our house and you meet our dog, he will either... Think that you are the most wonderful thing that's ever walked through the door, and he will roll over on his back and expose his belly to you for belly rubs, which is what he does every time Joel comes over. And others, right? Or he will look at you like you are an invader who does not belong in our house, and he will start barking at you and snarling at you and growling at you, which is what he did to Sean Troutman when he came over to our house. He might just be a good judge of character. (laughs) But he's, he's very unpredictable, so most of the time we have him put away if people come over. But the thing is, like, for, for Hazel, he's thinking, and yes, Hazel's a boy, read Watership Down. Okay, that's all I'm saying about that. Um, Hazel either will be in fear and awe and wonder of you, or he will try to make you afraid of him. 
He's going to try to do one of those two things. And actually, if he's trying to make you afraid of him, it's because he's afraid of you. And see, being afraid of you is not the same thing as fearing you in that loving and trusting way. When a dog is afraid of you, they will cower and they will get into a defensive position and look to lash out. But if a dog fears you with a loving fear that trusts, they recognize you and they, they roll over and they say, oh, you're somebody I can trust. But still, they will obey most of the time <laughs> because they fear you. There's a respect, there's a reverence, there's an honor there. And, and, and that's a good illustration of how we should be with the Lord. Uh, several nights ago, Hazel was afraid of the wind outside. He normally sleeps in his crate in the living room and loves it. He's very happy there. But the wind was blowing outside and the leaves were blowing and he wasn't happy. And he was upset. And I let him out, let him outside, came back in, and he did something he almost never does. He took off and jumped in our bed. Because when he was afraid of the wind outside, he wanted to be with the people he knew would keep him safe. The people he fears with a loving respect and honor and submission. He wanted to be near us. God wants us to fear him, not so that we will be afraid of him and cower from him, but that we will draw close to him and love him. We will trust him and we will rest in him. If we're gripped by the latest conspiracy theories and fearful of things in the world, we will not do that. We will be controlled by those things into being hasty, angry, unwise, even desperate, and the world and the devil will laugh at us because we're then in a place where we're easy to manipulate. Fear of man. The Bible says fear of man is a snare, and here's why. Fear of man could mean being afraid of what someone might do to harm us or being afraid of being rejected by other people. Either one is still fear of man. And fear of man is a snare because it absolutely traps us and keeps us from keeping the two great commandments, which ought to be the heartbeat of our lives. The heartbeat of our lives ought to be love to God, love to neighbor, love to God, love to neighbor, the glory of God and the good of others. But if we fear man, we're not fearing the Lord. What controls our heart is somebody's going to hurt me or somebody's going to reject me, and I have to act in a way that's going to protect me from being hurt or rejected. We're not loving God in that case. And we're also, guess what we're also not doing? We're also not loving other people. Because on a human level, you cannot be afraid of someone and love them at the same time. You might do nice things for them, but you're going to be doing nice things for them so that they won't harm you or so that they will accept you, and that's not love, that's manipulation. So the fear of man is a snare because it keeps us from loving God and loving others. We have to fear the Lord. The Lord is this mighty rock. That's the picture here in this passage. And if you fear him, you find sanctuary in him. You find shelter from the storm. A place you can hide and be safe. But if you don't fear him, if you oppose him, then he becomes a stumbling block, a stone of offense. Our third plot-driving question of our lives is, what are you waiting for? I would propose to you that we're all waiting for something or someone. It's tied into our hope, isn't it? When you hope for something, you wait for it. We're waiting for what we hope for. 
Romans 8. Romans 8, 22 to 25 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, who hopes for what he already sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I spent much of the earlier part of my life eagerly waiting for what was coming next and putting my hope in the next stage of my life. So I was in high school, I thought, if only I could graduate from high school, get out of my parents' house, get some freedom, go off to college, that'll be so much fun, that'll be such a better life for me. And then when I was in college, I thought, well, if only I could be finished with college and get out into the real world, then my real life will begin. And when I was single and lonely, I thought, if only I could meet the right girl. And uh, anyway, God lovingly provided that. But actually, the true story is I met a lot of not right girls. And then I surrendered that whole thing to the Lord. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to chase after girls anymore. I'm done with that. And then a few weeks later, I met a wonderful one 28 years ago. But then I thought, well, if only Beth and I were already married. And then I thought, well, yeah, but if we have kids, things will be great. <laughs> I actually thought that. <laughs> kids are wonderful. Kids are a blessing. Getting married and having children. Those of you who are still single or those of you who are married and don't have children yet, let me just tell you. Because I do premarital counseling. I'm doing it now, and it's wonderful, and I love it. But getting married and having children are two things that no one can really prepare you for the reality of. They are way harder than you think and way better than you think. You can't, you can't imagine the joy, and you can't imagine the sorrow. <laughs> you can't imagine the amount of effort it takes, and you can't imagine just the delight. But that's not our ultimate hope. And, and, and for a lot of my adult life, I thought, well, when I finally become a pastor, and, and, oh, somewhere along the line, I realized two things were happening by me doing this with my life. One, I was missing out on the goodness of what I already had. So I wasn't very thankful. So God convicted me that I needed to be more intentionally grateful for what he had already given me. And the second thing is that I was aiming my soul longing, my deep yearning, I was aiming that at things of the world, temporary things, and not at God. Good things that God provides, but not God himself. I was mistaking the gift for the giver. What I really yearn for is more of God, more Jesus in my heart and life. As I grow closer to God and closer fellowship with God in this life, I get more of that, but ultimately it's only a foretaste. And what I long for is the final redemption of the glory that is coming when Jesus comes again. We wait eager, eagerly, we groan inwardly for the redemption of our bodies. So what are you waiting for? Tune your heart longings to wait for the Lord and to long for eternity, even as you give thanks for the good things God has given you now in his undeserved love. And finally, perhaps the most practical and measurable question of all is this. Who are you listening to? 
Who's got your ear? An ear is a great way to get into your heart. In Ahaz's day, he had political advisors. But he and the people both sought after spiritualists, mediums, necromancers, who could talk to the dead. If only we could find out what the dead think of this. They're actually mocked here. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromances who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, darkness and distress, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. Now the key verse for us here, verse 20, to the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. The clearest truth, the most reliable guidance come from the Word of God. I know you expect me to say that as a pastor. It's Sunday morning, and I've got the Bible in front of me. That's the right thing to say, but it's also true. We need to have our minds shaped by and saturated with the Word of God, which is why one of our highest priorities as elders is to try to help you get into the Word of God every day of your life. We believe very strongly that you should spend time every day of your life reading God's Word and thinking about it. You eat every day. Satan talks to you every day. The world talks to you every day. Your flesh grumbles at you every day. You need every day in the Word of God. So if you're not yet tuned in to our Bible reading plan and getting those devotionals, start that. Start it today. Go home this afternoon. It's 1 Samuel 15 is the passage for today. There's a video on YouTube or on Facebook. It's on Sermon Audio in both audio and video formats. It's on podcast. You have Spotify. You can look it up. And get in the Word. You don't have to use that plan. You can use something else, but that's what we're doing together as a church, and, and God is using that. But be in the Word. Your mind needs to be transformed by being shaped by and saturated by the Word of God. Now, they were going after mediums and necromancers, but I want us to think about verse 19 in a slightly different way. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Now, not too many of us are going to mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. If you are, we need to have a side conversation about that. That's a different... But here's what we are all tempted to do. We seek guidance from those who are spiritually dead to guide our lives as those who are spiritually alive. 
The Bible says those who don't know the Lord are spiritually dead. They're cut off from the life of God. We should not allow those who do not know the Lord to be the most profound influences in our lives, to be guiding us in our values and in our deepest decision-making. Now, I'm not saying that unbelievers don't have anything good to say. By God's common grace, unbelievers can have good insights into many things. How to get in shape, how to eat a healthy diet, how to manage your money somewhat. How to fix your car. YouTube is a very helpful resource for all sorts of practical know-how. I, I, I'm, I'm not very handy, but I've learned how to do several things by just watching a YouTube video and then doing it, although sometimes Andrew can attest it doesn't quite work out how it was in the YouTube video. We went to go do the brakes on my old Buick, and yeah. But we do need in our life, we need the Word of God, but God's also given us each other. We need sources of biblical wisdom. How do I apply this Word to my life in a way that's wise, in a way that's in keeping with the Word, a way that shows discernment. And for that, we should go to trusted believers who have a little more gray on their head, a little more wear on their tread, and who've been down the road, we're going down. So many Christians have had the plot of their lives go off track because they've listened to the world or to their flesh. When the world and your flesh shape your hopes and your fears and your longings, you're headed for a train wreck. You can be a professing Christian. You can come to church. You can even read your Bible. But if at the most fundamental level, your hopes, your fears, what you're waiting and expecting for, your expectations and your truth are fundamentally shaped by your flesh and by the world, you are headed for a train wreck. The Word of God tells us that we need to seek the Lord. We need to seek the one who is the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, and he tells us that if we walk with him, in fellowship with him, we will not walk in darkness. We will walk in light, and we will have the light of life. So, what are your hopes? Have you anchored your life's hope to Jesus? What are you afraid of? Are you walking in the fear of the Lord? What are you waiting for? Is your deepest expectant waiting for the Lord? And who are you listening to? Does God's word have your ear more than any other voice? These are the four questions that drive our internal conflict and thus shape the plot of our lives. May it be from God and for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Thank you for giving us the truth in the one who is the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving us wisdom in your word. Giving us the communion of saints where we can get counsel from wise elders in the faith. We pray that you would lead us to put our hope in you, to fear you, to expectantly long for you, and to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen.